Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode eight. Thank you for joining us. We're going to talk about food storage in your van and a little bit about wall coverings and a tale from the road, as well as a product review of the 12 volt Alpacool compressor refrigerator and a very interesting place to visit in Texas called Luling, which smells really bad, but tastes really good. Let's get started. I am starting my day with a lovely cup of coffee, and we will have a future episode about coffee in your van, which I find to be an incredibly important topic, so important that I can't even concentrate on that right now. But we will talk about food storage. So here's the deal. You uh, have spent at least some of your time in a house, I'm guessing. Maybe you were born in a van and have lived in a van for 30 years. I don't know. But I'm going to just assume you've spent time in a house. And in your house, you had a bunch of things. One of those was an ambient temperature. The inside of your house probably stayed within a range of, say, 65 to 80, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower at some extremes. You had a refrigerator that kept your food at 37 degrees Fahrenheit or, say, 3 degrees Celsius. A freezer that kept other food at 0 degrees Fahrenheit or maybe negative 10 Celsius. You had all those things. And those were all places where you stored food. So, if you want to store food in your van, first, look at how you store food at home. And then see what you can replicate and what you can't. The truth is, you can replicate all those conditions in your van but some have practical considerations that are more difficult than others. So let's consider those in the order that I gave them. Ambient temperature. This is the one that I see people talking about the least, but is actually one of the most important for food storage. Unless you are in your van constantly, you are not going to keep the temperature inside the van a livable temperature. Now Maybe you have a pet and you have to do this. But for most of us, the van's temperature is going to be the same as the outside temperature at some point. And as we know, that range is, say, from negative 40 to, you know, 120 or maybe even more or 40, 45 degrees Celsius. Very hot, very cold. Neither of those conditions are great for all kinds of food. So when you buy food, consider where am I going to store this and how? Because of this, I tend to buy a lot of canned foods, a lot of dried food. In fact, I've got a new appreciation for these things. I, I, hey, I, I gave up on canned food long, long time ago. I think frozen food is superior, but it costs money to store frozen food. It doesn't cost any money to store canned food. Uh, canned food is heavier. It can have more sodium. There's all those considerations which you'll have to weigh. But if you have a can of food in your van it's got a pretty good chance of surviving unless it gets super, super cold, in which case it can freeze. But honestly, with the amount of salt that's in most canned foods, that's very unlikely. And it would have to get super, super hot for it to explode. If, if, you've, if you've got your van hot enough to make a can of food explode, your van has already exploded. So that's not an issue. Dried foods, you just need to put in a container that keeps them safe from insects and rodents, which you shouldn't have in your van anyway, but you don't want to attract them. And the advantage of dry foods is that they weigh very little. All other foods basically weigh more than dried foods because they contain a lot of water. And water is heavy. Water is like eight and a half pounds per gallon. Dried foods only weigh exactly what you need. You already have water. You just add the water to the dried food and you're good to go. And you haven't carried any more weight than you had to. For the dried and canned foods, what I try to use them for is ingredients. I'm not trying to buy a whole meal. I'm trying to buy ingredients that I can combine to make a whole meal. This adds a lot more flexibility 
and uh, interest, frankly. Boy, if, if you spend a week eating Chef Boyardee out of a can, you're going to be really sick of it. But if you get some cans of beans and corn and other vegetables you like, and you can actually get canned meats that work too, canned chicken comes just like tuna, but it's actually chicken, and you can add it to anything you'd add chicken to. They have a beef option like that, too. So those are the best things for vans, in my opinion. Uh, they have the best chance of surviving. They have the longest shelf life, and in some cases, they're among the cheapest, like pasta. Then there's fresh fruits and vegetables, also a great option for vans. They do have a couple of drawbacks. Uh, one is that they are fragile. You need to store them in a place that has a lot of aeration and protects them from being bounced around a lot. You see those fruit hammocks all the time, and they're great, but you have to be careful that that fruit hammock isn't bouncing against the side of your van, or your bananas are going to look pretty terrible. So you have to have a good way to wash them, and you're going to have food waste with vegetables uh, in fruits, which not that big of a deal. You're going to have waste with almost all of these options, but it's something you have to consider, that you have a perishable waste and it is not recommended that you just throw this stuff outside. Oh, I've got an apple core. I'm just going to toss it in the woods. I used to be okay with that. But now that I've read a bit more, I'm kind of not because it's attracting animals to places where you don't want animals, both for your safety and theirs. Meats. I am not a vegetarian. I, I do eat meat, but I don't have raw meat in my van. I don't think it's a good idea for a number of reasons, but one is it is the lowest shelf life of any possible food you can have. Uh, meat can go bad in half an hour, and it needs to be constantly cold or hot. Also, it is a prime candidate for foodborne illness, while you know romaine lettuce also is. Uh, meat, you have to be careful with stuff like uh, your knives and cutting boards, um, and that is a lot of work. At home, you can throw stuff in the dishwasher and have a really good chance of sanitizing things. In the van, you are the dishwasher, and it's more difficult to sanitize these things. At the very least, if you're going to do raw meat in the van, don't use the same cutting board for fresh vegetables and fruits as you do for raw meat. It's just a bad idea. Also, counterintuitive though it may be, wood cutting boards are better at keeping you safe from foodborne illness than plastic. You might think I'm crazy. Google it. There's something about wood that fights bacteria better than plastic in this case. Very strange. And don't be fooled by that microband stuff. It's, it's largely a scam. Okay, let's talk about the obvious thing here is like, well, keeping food cold. There are many different types of refrigerators you can have for your van. I am in the camp where a 12-volt compressor fridge is your best option when you weigh out everything. But let's forget about the technology for a bit here. What you're trying to do is keep food cold. And the ideal temperature for a fridge tends to be 37 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's your goal. Ice is 32 degrees Fahrenheit, but the air around the ice isn't. So... Yes, ice in a chest will keep things cold. It's also going to be more expensive over time. You've got water to deal with. Things get soggy, etc. 12-volt refrigerators, and I mean compressor refrigerators, not those thermoelectric cooler things, tend to be the best in my experience. But mine doesn't have a freezer, for example. What if you want a freezer? Well, you can spend a lot of money and get a refrigerator with a small freezer compartment, and that will let you have your, your ice cream and such. But I don't have a freezer, and I don't miss it that much. If I want ice cream... I'll just go get ice cream and eat it then. If I have frozen foods, uh, like, let's say I have frozen corn, I let it thaw out in the refrigerator. 
it doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't have to stay frozen. Uh, a lot of foods are like that. They're frozen to keep them longer, but if you defrost them in the refrigerator, that's fine. You just adjust your cooking a little bit. Obviously, this isn't going to work with something like a frozen pizza, which kind of loses its form when it's thawed. But frozen pizza, unless you're doing a French bread pizza, is really hard to cook in a van. And here's a, a neat tip. If you are a dedicated freezer person, like let's say maybe you're a hunter and you have all this venison and you want to keep it frozen, don't get a big refrigerator with a little freezer. Get two refrigerators. And the reason I say this is because most 12-volt compressor refrigerators can be set to zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is plenty cold enough to freeze food. So what you'd have is two separate units, one for refrigeration and one for frozen food. You'd have to measure your electrics, all your specs, make sure your amp draws are proper. But boy, does that give you a lot of space and it gives you a lot of flexibility. Plus, you can have your refrigerator, say, in the front where you're going to grab drinks often, but you can have the freezer in the, if you have a garage, as they call it, in the back under your bed, whatever. You can hide that more because you're not going to be going in there as much. And you kind of want it to be, um, you know, out of the way because that will help keep it colder. Again, with all those things, you need a lot of ventilation. You're going to look into that before you put one in, I'm sure. There's some ideas about food storage. You don't always have to alter your van to make it more like your house. Sometimes you can alter your habits to make them more suitable for the van. And storing food is definitely one of those. Tech Talk. A lot of pictures you see of vans, you'll see wood for the wall coverings. So let's talk about wood for a minute. What if you're going to use wood for a wall covering? A lot of folks will say, hey, let's upcycle, and they'll get pallets, which are a very heavy, very dense wood usually. Pallets are made out of all kinds of different woods, but they tend to be tropical woods because a lot of these pallets come from tropical countries, and they're very heavy, dense woods. So if you're going to use pallets to cover your walls, keep in mind that it's going to add a lot of weight. And plus, it's a lot of work. You're going to want to sand those. You're going to want to clean them. Uh, you don't know where the pallets come from. There could be a lot of chemicals on there, or there could even be insects. you got to prepare them right. It's a lot of work and a lot of weight. They can look really, really nice, and the price is usually pretty good. But consider those things, that they actually may not be the best option. I think a better option is if you want wood, is to get tongue and groove wainscoting. Wainscoting also is also called beadboard, and it comes in these long strips of wood. They're maybe a quarter of an inch thick, three inches wide, and up to eight feet long. And they're tongue and groove usually. They're super flexible. They'll bend around things, and they snap together. Well, they at least fit together. Maybe they don't snap. But you don't have to screw in... 800,000 places to hold them up to the wall. And to some extent, they're removable so that if you need to get back there to change something, you can. You can paint them, you can sand them, you can seal them, you can do whatever you want to make them look cool. I mean, you can paint every other one a different color of stain, for example. You can get three different colors of brown, and then you'll have that same look that the palettes give you. Uh, I really think it's a great option, and it's not very expensive. It's easy to cut with a jigsaw or a handsaw. It doesn't require any super powerful tools. So definitely consider that if you want the wood look. People do plywood sometimes. I think it's kind of harsh. It can be heavy. It's not very flexible. Um, I Hey, if you've got plywood already up, consider keeping it. Take it down, insulate, put the plywood back up, and then just cover the plywood. That seems like a great option to me. I would certainly consider that if that's what I had. But let's say you, um, you have metal or you have that masonite stuff that sometimes lines the vans. And you don't really want wood. I'm in that boat. I don't actually like 
the look of wood in my van. I don't want my van to look like a log cabin. I want it to look more like an airplane. Personal preference. There's no one is not better than the other. That is not at all what we're talking about. It's just what I prefer. So I decided to go with carpet. Now, I didn't use just any old carpet. I got a special kind of carpet called four-way stretch carpet. Imagine your car's carpet. It looks like that, except this stuff is meant to be molded around things. If you take a piece of it, just do this thought experiment for me. You have a piece of fabric hanging in front of you, and you punch your fist through it. But your fist doesn't go through it. It just makes a big dent. That's what this stuff does. And that dent can be around a wheel well or around a fuel filler or around a beam, a support, whatever. This stuff will stretch. You grab it and you stretch it and you mold it and it stays in that shape. It has zero elasticity. Of course, if you mess up, then that shape is permanent. You kind of have to start over. But that's the other nice thing about this. It really is excellent at hiding seams. You can cut two pieces, put them up together on the wall, and then comb the nap over the seam, and it almost goes away. So four-way stretch carpet comes in all different kinds of colors. It's pretty easy to work with. You use uh, contact glue to put it up on the walls. Definitely an option to look into. But that doesn't mean you can't use any kind of fabric that you want. I recommend against actual carpets because they're too stiff to work with. Um, Nate from Element Van Life managed to get a black carpet up on the walls and it worked for him. I don't think it's the best option. Any kind of fabric that you get at a fabric store can work if you're willing to put in the work. But if you're going to go that route, try to get something a little bit more stretchy or flexible. You're going to save yourself a lot of time. Also, don't be afraid to be creative. I just saw a guy with a Ford Explorer put uh, vinyl siding on his ceiling. Now, I know it's not a wall, but I was like, hey, that's thinking outside the box. And I think it actually looks pretty good because he got that kind of flat kind of siding. Also... You get to decorate. This is your van. You can decorate. Um, some of the nicest van builds I've seen actually use the sacks that coffee comes in, these big, huge, heavy sacks. You can get them for about 30 bucks for a, a bag of 10. Used coffee bags, they kind of smell like coffee. They even have coffee beans in them sometimes. But they're, they're kind of attractive, and they're big, and you can cover a lot of van with these things. It's your van. You can cover the walls with whatever you want. That's basically the message I'm giving you. It doesn't have to be wood. It doesn't have to be plastic. It can be almost anything. Just consider that you want the material to be durable, flexible, and you want it to avoid condensation. Those are your main considerations. Other than that, have fun and let us know how it went. Tales from the road. I was actually going to tell a different story, and I decided to not do that, and I don't know why I'm telling you this, because you wouldn't know unless you heard me say that I was going to talk about Aurora, North Carolina, which I'm not going to talk about because that's too big of a story at this moment. Instead, I'm going to talk about Aurora, Indiana. Yes, there's that theme again. I promise I will explain, but not now. I went to Aurora, Indiana a couple months ago. Uh, lots to see there. I'm going to talk about one specific story. I rolled into town. And driving around, and it's a it's a cute little town. You can tell they're trying to to become a little bit more touristy. There's lots of murals up, and one of the murals is on the side of a warehouse, and it's just a bunch of people doing things and like looking out the windows and stuff. And they're actually all real people that live in the town. The artist painted actual people, and given that the town has a population of something like 1,100, a good number of the townspeople are up there. There was something specific about those people, and uh, that will be part of the story. I like to tell 
positive stories. I like to be able to promote things, but this story uh, bothers me. And uh, it's the truth. I'm going to tell it, and the cards will fall where they may. I was uh, looking for things to do in Aurora, Indiana, and I drove by something I had never seen before. And that was a high school museum. What would a high school museum be? I really had no idea. I thought maybe the local high school kind of had its own museum, like a history museum put on by the local high school. Or maybe that building used to be the high school and they turned it into a museum. Turns out it was neither of those things. It was a museum to the Aurora High School that closed in 1973. 46 years ago, according to when I visited, this museum, this uh, high school closed. And last year they built a museum honoring it. I, I went inside because... This is something new that I have to see. And first thing I saw were high school lockers. And then I saw Letterman's jackets and yearbooks. And yes, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a museum to high school life, mostly in the 50s and 60s, at this Southern Indiana high school. And it was kind of fascinating. Uh, there was all kinds of nostalgic stuff to see there. And um, this high school had this a few traditions I've never heard of. One of them was that they... They made these skirts, all the, the, the women, the young women, the girls, however you want to refer to them, um, made these skirts out of corduroy, light-colored, kind of a yellowish corduroy, that they would decorate. And uh, they had several of these, uh, probably a few dozen, actually, as a, of examples. And some of them would actually recreate, like, the classic poodle skirt in this corduroy, or they would have the names of some of the football players, or it was just high school pep squad stuff, but there were tons of them. I figured... Almost all the women had to have been wearing these at one point. And they had all the yearbooks and photographs. And I, it was clear to me very quickly that the curator, there were, there were two people there. Let me back up a little bit. When I stepped inside the door, there were two people there. There was the curator, the owner, the person running the museum, and an assistant. The curator, if you've, ever seen, uh, if you've ever seen Sweeney Todd, there's a scene where Sweeney Todd walks in the door and Mrs. Lovett says, A customer! I had that moment when I walked in the door. I felt like I was the only person who'd ever visited this museum. And the curator latched onto me and showed me every single object in there. Uh, like every yearbook. And as charming as it was, after seeing 30 yearbooks, I kind of get the theme. I am not criticizing her for that. I, I thought it was charming and I really enjoyed her enthusiasm. And I actually think this is a great idea. Uh, for people coming back to Aurora to be able to go and visit a little bit of their old high school. I mean, this is a rural-ish part of the state. Um, high schools of center of the community. It's a great idea. And I really enjoyed seeing all these little aspects of, of, of this life that I did not have. My, my high school experience was quite different. As it happened, the day earlier, I had been in Aurora, Illinois. Again, I promise I will explain at some point. Not now. In Aurora, Illinois, they had two high schools. It was a much bigger, bigger town. It was a city. Aurora, Illinois is a fairly prosperous community. And they had a, a West High School and an East High School, and everybody in town was split. You know, there's like, are you East or West? Kind of like in Chicago where I am now. Are you a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan? It was on my mind, and so I asked the woman, hey, so Aurora High School, you know, part of high school sports, which is a big part of the culture here, is rivalries. So who is Aurora 
Indiana high school's rival. And she was like, Lawrenceburg, I guess, because, well, you know. Well, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know much about southern Indiana. I, I, I'm a transplant to the Midwest. I don't know that much about things here. So what do you mean? It's like, well, Lawrenceburg is um, bigger, bigger school. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's more urban. And I'm, you know, like, oh, okay. I, again, I don't know that much. Although Lawrenceburg, Indiana has never really jumped out at me as a, a big named place. And she said, well, here, let me show you. And she, and she opens the uh, yearbook and, and there's a picture of the basketball team. And at that moment, I notice that the high school basketball team picture looks an awful lot like the murals outside that I saw. And that is that it's completely filled with white people. Everybody. There was not a person of color represented in that high school, nor on the mural. And as I'm just noticing this, as the idea is forming in my head, she said, well, you know, that's where the people of color went. And I could kind of sense that that people of color was a term that she was trying to get comfortable with. And my demeanor changed at that moment. I had to take a step back and consider my own whiteness and the fact that, hey, I'm a middle-aged white male. I've got the game set on easy all the time. And there's a little bit of code talking going on here that I'm not receiving exactly as is expected. She was basically telling me that Aurora was for the white people. Aurora High School is where the white kids went, and we had a rivalry with the school that was less white. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of tragic. Um... It's kind of tragic that that would even be a thought, but, you know, it was the 50s and 60s, and Indiana does have kind of a rough history when it comes to civil rights, and, you know, certainly things are better now. Well, I'm sad to say that upon a bit of research, things really aren't all that much better. Um, I'm not going to go into any detail here, but Aurora, Indiana has been involved in racial incidents as recently as 2016. It was actually a sundown town, which is... um, if you've not heard of that term, it meant that if you were not white, you couldn't be in town after sundown. Uh, some fairly tragic bits of history there. So I, I think I've said enough here. I am going to have another medium in which I'll talk about this much more. But that's my tale from the road, is that I, Aurora, Indiana, taught me that some of America is much, much darker than other parts. And even saying that makes me uncomfortable. Okay, product review. Uh, I talked a lot about refrigerators. I'll tell you what I ended up with. I got a 12-volt compressor fridge, 15 liters, which is relatively small. Think about like a small ice chest. Made by Alpacool, which is kind of this fake brand name. Uh, It's Alpi, A-L-P-I, cool, one word. And this is a cheap Chinese knockoff 12-volt compressor fridge that is sold under the brand name Alpacool here. It's got other brand names, too. When you, when you see these things lined up, they're all exactly the same thing. They just have different stickers on them. That's fine. It works. This little thing uses very little power and keeps my food cold. And when you might think, oh, it's so small, don't compare it to a cooler. Don't forget, you got to fill your cooler with ice. You don't have to fill this thing with anything except your food. So I find that 15 liters is a great size. The only drawback is that uh, you can't put like a 12 ounce soda or 20 ounce soda in there and shut the lid. It's not deep enough. And they do make one that's only, I think it's 20 or $30 more that has a raised lid that you can put those things in. That might be a better option. But for me, this thing works great. 
It has two modes, a standard mode and an eco mode. The standard mode um, uses full power to get the temperature down as quick as possible. The eco mode kind of comes on more often but doesn't run as long. You have to play with that to see which is better for you. It runs fine off my solar panels, my battery. It draws four amps, I think, when it's on. And of course, it's not on all the time. And it even has two USB charger ports on it too, which is great. Now I did have to wire this thing directly to the battery. Uh, the startup amperage, that millisecond when the thing starts up draws so much that I decided it would be better to go straight to the battery. So I don't actually have this thing separately switched, but it works great. It has a display that tells you the temperature. Um, and that was only 179 bucks. Uh, it's in my opinion, that's a bargain. Yes, you can, you can spend less on a fridge and use an inverter, but boy, they're so inefficient and they're just not built to be portable. Another nice thing about this thing is I can unplug it and carry it into the house, fill it with food, and then take it back out to the van. It's small enough to do that. And you can set the temperature anywhere from 50 degrees Fahrenheit to zero degrees Fahrenheit. So it absolutely will freeze food if you want. And that's why I recommend, hey, if you need a freezer, get a second one of these. For less than 400 bucks, you can have a good size freezer and a decent size fridge. All you need is the space to store them. So anyway, 12 volt Alpacool compressor fridge. The C15, I think, is the model I have. I'll have a link in the show notes. They come in this little tiny size and they also get really big. But for the money, I have to say this thing's a bargain. All right, a place to visit. So, hey, you're driving around, you're looking for a place to visit. Um, and you happen to be in Texas. There's lots of places to visit in Texas. Texas obviously is huge. But this place is a place that you're more likely to run across, and I recommend you stop. So you've got Austin and San Antonio, two places you're likely to visit on a road trip of Texas. In between those is this town called Luling. And my friend Naomi turned me on to this place uh, over 10 years ago when we did a big road trip of Texas. Little tiny town, famous for two things. The first thing, it's well, actually three things, the third being watermelon. I'm not going to talk too much about that. But the first thing is petroleum. It's one of the first places petroleum was, was taken out of the earth. And if you've seen pictures of Texas where it's this black and white image with nothing but oil derricks and it's kind of like a lake of oil. That's what Luling looked like back in the day. The first thing you notice when you drive into Luling is that it smells like oil. Some people don't like this. I kind of like it. it. It's this earthy industrial smell that for whatever reason I kind of enjoy. And they have all these uh, modern oil wells going, you know, the, the kind that go up and down. And they're all decorated. There's like 20 different decorated ones. Like they look like a drinking bird or a squirrel cracking a nut or whatever. That's fun. And they have a petroleum museum. And I like museums anyway. And you get to learn a lot. Like, for example, what does an oil well look like? That image you have in your mind? That's not an oil well. That's the scaffolding they put up to hold the drilling rig. And after they actually hit the oil, that doesn't do anything. It's just there. And it's usually removed. That kind of stuff. And I'm leaving out the best part. Remember I said it smells bad, but it tastes really good? They have the most authentic Texas barbecue, well, literally anywhere in Luling. There's actually two different places that have it. I recommend the one that's called Original City Market Barbecue. And uh, it's this very modest place. You buy it by the pounds, and it's a dry barbecue, and you are supposed to eat it with Wonder Bread and pickles, and that's it. Sauce. They have it. It's for the tourists. They don't do the sauce thing. Anyway, stop in Luling, spend a couple hours, get some barbecue, and pick up a watermelon. They'll be selling them there. Definitely a place to check out if you're ever in that part of Texas. 
Hey, a little bit of Q&A from my friend Shauna, who is currently in New York City. Hi, Shauna. Hey, Shauna would like to know, very simply, how much does all this cost? And I'm not sure if I've actually talked about this, so uh, in some broad terms, let's let's talk about it. Uh, my van, I know I've mentioned this before, my van was, uh, I believe, I think it was $8,700, $8,750. That was for a 2014 Nissan NV200 SV, the quote-unquote fancier model, with 111,000 miles on it. A few dings here and there, had a roof rack and a steel cargo divider that I took out. So that was my base. And the stuff that goes inside, as a ballpark, $1,500, but you certainly could do it for less, and some of that money was for extras. I bought my stuff at Ikea, a lot of it. The cabinets were like $300. The flooring was about 60 the MPPT solar controller I splurged a little bit on. That was like 90 You can certainly do that for a lot less money. The solar panels were $90 a piece. Uh, I have two 100-watt monocrystalline rigid panels. Uh, I actually got one for free, which is a long story, but I, I ended up going really, really cheap with the batteries, uh, kind of embarrassingly cheap. They were about $60 each from Harbor Freight on sale. They're two 35-amp-hour AGM batteries from Harbor Freight, giving me 70 amp-hours total. But of course, with AGM batteries, you can only use half, so I've actually only got the 35 amp-hours, which is not very much, folks. My backup battery was 150. That's certainly not something you need. $100 for the fabric to cover the walls. Maybe another couple hundred dollars, random hardware and such. And then there's these endless little things like hooks and trim pieces. And um, the tanks that hold the water were $13 a piece. And the faucet was $54. And the sink was about $5. The countertops I got uh, from the scratch and dent department of Ikea, they were 50 bucks. There's a mat that I put on top of the bed that was about 50 bucks. The bed itself was about $175. Anyway, none of this matters. I mean, you can see the, how this is all adding up and you know, it ends up being a decent amount of money. But the fact of the matter is, this camper van would have been nearly completely functional for just a couple hundred bucks. In fact, the first time I took it out, it was just using stuff I had around the house, and it worked. There is no upper limit for how much you can spend. I mean, there are literally $200,000 vans out there. But for me, I'm in it around the $1,500 mark. Uh, and obviously, the longer I have it, the more money that is because I keep adding and tweaking more stuff. I hope that answers your question. The bottom line is, is that get a van. You can make the rest of it work. I promise you, for $200, you can have a comfortable space inside your van. It may not be perfect, but really, it's doable. Thank you for listening to episode eight. I really appreciate all the time you spent listening to me jabber. Uh, next time we're going to talk about coffee, and boy, that's a bigger topic than you might think. We'll also do some tech talk about detectors. I have a tale from the road that's a little odd, as are they all. And I'm finally going to review the Olympian Wave 3, now that I've used it enough. Music's by Simon Wagg. Check us out at built2go.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you're having a wonderful life.